So we will be in Matthew chapter 13. If you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 13. And continuing in the uh, pattern that we've been using, uh, we're going to read verse 7, and then I'm going to hop over to verse 20. We're going to read the parable, and then we're going to read how Jesus explains the parable. And then we will uh, we'll go into a time of prayer. Verse 7 of Matthew chapter 13. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is the Word of God. You may have a seat. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp Tremble. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 through 20. This is the scene when God came down to make His covenant with the Moses and the children of Israel. And this covenant consisted of obligatory laws that the people of Israel were to obey, and it consisted of promises that they would receive if they were obedient. And the covenant and the laws that constituted it, this whole covenant concept would take a family basically, and and probably scattered in amongst this family were some Egyptians that that got caught up in the Exodus. They would take this family and make out of this family a theocratic nation. They would make out of them a nation with a king and a government and laws all because of this covenant. These people would be God's people and He would be their God. The moral law given on that day at Mount Sinai, etched in tablets of stone, was nothing more and nothing less than the delineation of the unchanging nature and character of God Himself written on stone. These first ten commandments had been instilled in the hearts of mankind since creation, and now they would be used to govern this nation along with all of the other case laws that came from this moral law. This moral law was given in two tables. The first table, commandments 1 through 4, 
concerned man's relationship to God. And the second table, commandments 5 through 6, concerned man, man's relationship with one another. And you can't separate these two things. 1 John tells us that if any man says that he loves God, but he does not love his brother, he's, he's a liar. So you can't say, well, I love God, I obey the first table, but I don't love my neighbor. I break the second table. That doesn't make any sense. The, the law comes as a whole. And the first table of the moral law is headed off by the very first and what many believe to be the most important of the Ten Commandments. Many say that the other nine are just extrapolations of that first commandment. In other words, if a person gets the first commandment right, all of the other commandments will follow suit. They're, they're just they're, they're a given. If you just get the first one wrong, if you're breaking the other nine, it's because you've missed the first one. Now, that first commandment is as follows. You shall have no other gods before Me. Speaking to a nation of probably a few million people who had just spent generations, 400 years in Egypt, this generation having just visibly watched as Yahweh systematically made an open spectacle of the pantheon of the gods of Egypt, God states in absolutely unequivocal terms, there will be no other gods. You see what I did to their gods? They were a joke. You're my people and there will be no other gods. Now when you study this command, you learn that God was not saying, now look, if you're going to have other gods, I'd like to be at the top of the list. That's not what He's saying. He's, he's not asking or requesting a position of priority amongst other deities. God is saying, there will be no others. He alone is God. There is no other. There is none besides Him. He will have no equal, no rival, no challenger, no contender. Amongst God's people, there will be but one and only one who will be worshipped. That's the Old Testament. Then we come to the New Testament, and as soon as we get into the New Testament, Jesus is on the scene, and He restates the same theme. Quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, when He was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, He says, You shall have, or you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Matthew 4, verse 10. Now here, the term is, terms are a little more focused. It's obvious, I think we would agree, that bowing down to Satan as God and worshiping Him, that's not an option. And Jesus makes that clear. But He also makes clear that there aren't even to be any others to come close to God. We are to worship God and God alone. We are to serve God and God alone. So we learn from the Old Testament and the New Testament that God demands the sole place of supremacy in the devotions of His people. God will be had only, or He will not be had. There, is no, there, there isn't any, nor has there ever been, any room in God's economy amongst God's people for divided devotions. So, so what are we to do with those who seem to be doing a very good job at juggling Devotion to God and the things of God and just other things. Things not of God. What name can be placed on those who seem to have the perfect balance of godliness and worldliness? 
Under what category would we place someone who seems to have an affinity for God's kingdom, but at the same time an affinity for man's kingdom? Well, based on this passage that we're studying today, we can call them thorny ground hearers. These people are divided, they are distracted, and will be ultimately damned. So we'll break this down into two headings again like the previous weeks. We'll look at the parable, and then we'll look at the exposition, and then we'll get some application out of it. So heading number one, the thorny soil. The thorny soil, verse 7. It begins by saying, other seeds. Again, this is in contrast to the seeds we've already talked about. There were the seeds that fell along the path, the hard ground. They made no effect. They weren't received at all. They just bounced along the path and the birds came and swooped in and took them away. Last week we looked at the rocky ground seeds. They fell into some shallow soil and very quickly sprang up because the soil was probably a little moist, probably had some good heat, but as the sun rose, because they didn't have any deep roots, they were fried. They were scorched. What we see is that some people, when they hear the word of the gospel, they won't understand at all. They will make no connection. That's the pathway here. It's their, their mind, their heart is hard as a rock. Others will be like the rocky ground here, they'll, they'll receive it with joy and gladness. Right off the bat, they love the gospel, but as soon as a time of tribulation, a time of testing, a, a time of persecution arises, it will reveal that in their heart they never had a true relationship with Jesus Christ. All of this again is in the context of this, this parable of the kingdom. This idea that if the gospel is going to be spread... If it's going to be, or if the kingdom is going to be spread, it's going to be through the spread of the gospel. This sower is sowing the word of God, the word of the gospel. So these other seeds, not different, they're from the same bag by the same sower, but they're other seeds, they fell among thorns. Now, thorns have a very long history on this earth. Thorns go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, but if we think about it just a little bit, especially if we remember some things that were said in our previous series, thorns don't go back quite as far as some other plants. In Genesis 1, 11-13, on the third day of creation, God created plants yielding seed and, and fruit-bearing trees. But then when we come to Genesis chapter 2, we find out that there had not yet been made any, any small plants. When you break that down in the Hebrew language, they call that the wild shrubs of the steppe. That is, plants that would oftentimes have thorns and thistles. But God didn't initially create thorns. It wasn't until the fall of Adam in Genesis 3 that, quote, thorns and thistles were promised as a part of the decay of creation. Then they are introduced. So from their inception, thorns and thistles have symbolically represented the downfall of creation. Hardship, struggle. Every time we see briars and thorns or weeds growing up through the sidewalk, we should be reminded of sin and the judgment that comes because of sin. We would often group thorns today in the category of just weeds, other troublesome plants. Now let's think a minute about thorns or briars or weeds. Who takes the time to plant 
thorns. No one. No one goes out saying, well, I'm, I'm going to grow a garden of thorn bushes. Who cultivates thorns? Who works, works them and, and prunes them back? No one. No one does this. The point is, thorns are the natural outgrowth of uncultivated soil. You don't plant thorns and thistles and weeds. You don't water them. You don't add fertilizer to help them grow and go out every day and check them. You don't care for them in any way. There's no planting season. Nobody's saying, well, don't plant your briars before Easter because if the frost comes, they're going to die. Nobody says that. If you cut them down, they're going to grow back. If you walk on them, you trample on them, you, you, you mistreat them, they come back. They just spring right back up. They're strong. They're not puny, tender plants. All you have to do is leave land unattended for just a little bit, and thorns and thistles and other obnoxious plants will eventually take over. Cantaloupe doesn't do this. Apple trees don't do this. Wheat doesn't do this. But thorns, if simply left unattended, they take over. They spread and they will take over. So these thorns in this parable might have been up you know, along the edges of the field. They might have been up against the edge of some of this rocky ground soil. He maybe couldn't get the, the donkey to pull the plow right up next to the rock, and so they just had to stay there. Couldn't till up the ground very well there. And so some seeds fell among thorns, and it says, and thorns grew up and choked them. The word choked means literally to strangle, to grab by the throat and to squeeze, to cut off the air supply, the life source. This would cause death. Now how does this happen in the, the realm of weeds and plants? We know thorns don't have hands. These seeds don't have throats. Thorns, other evasive weeds, they grow fairly rapidly as far as plants are concerned. And in the process, they they rob the ground of nutrients that other plants need. They, they steal it and they leave an imbalance in the soil. And so other plants are left with just taking whatever they can get. They, they tend to be unhealthy. Thorns, thistles, weeds, they tend to spread quickly. They cover a lot of ground. They, they steal, or steal soil space. They tend to grow large root systems, so they rob the soil of its water supply. They, they grow taller, faster than other plants, so they rob sunlight. They leave the other plants in the shade. They tend to grow stronger, so they, they adapt over time to different foreign substances and toxins in the soil, and they develop immunities to these things. And so, you don't have to go buy a bag of 10, 10, 10 potting soil from, from the store to plant thorns. They can grow almost anywhere because they're strong. They've developed these immunities. These types of plants, thorns, thistles, weeds, they act almost like bully plants. They come in and they just take over. They snatch up all of the nourishment that other plants need and they leave them starving. And the end result is a, a bunch of living thorns and weeds and the other plants are dead. They're choked. They're strangled. They may have established some sort of root system. Those roots were never able to acquire any life, any nutrients from the soil to live. So that's what's happened. Other seeds fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and they choked them. Number two, 
Moving over to verse 22, we look at the smothered heart as Jesus explains what He means by this parable. He says, As for what was sown among thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is one who hears the word. Again, this is not... Someone who's deaf. This is not someone in the deep, dark jungle somewhere who never heard. This is one who hears the Gospel. If we were to look over again at verse 13 of this chapter, remember when we we walked through that section talking about the purpose of the parables, we talked about outward perception versus inward reception. Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because... Seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Hearing they do not hear. You see, they can hear with their outward physical ears, but they're not hearing. Hearing they do not hear inwardly. They're not hearing with their heart. That's this group. Like both other groups, they've heard, their physical ears have received the gospel, but they're not receptive in their hearts. Well, how do we know that? Because he says... This is one who hears the word, but... Again, there's a contrast, but... Because people like us, when we find out someone heard the gospel, we say, praise God! We get excited, but we need to maybe hold back just a minute. He heard the gospel, but... Don't get excited because... The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. The cares of the world... And the deceitfulness of riches. Let's look at these. The cares of the world. The word cares means the worries, the the concerns, the thoughts, the musings, the considerations. When your mind goes to something, that's a care. The cares of the world. This is not the cares belonging to the world as if the world is thinking of something. This is the cares that a person has pertaining to the world. So the worries, the concerns, the thoughts, the musings, the considerations pertaining to the world that this person who has heard the gospel has pertaining to the world. And this word world, if we know anything about Bible study, we should know this one. This should be up up, way up there in our Bible study knowledge, our bank. The word world has many different meanings in especially the New Testament. So just because you see the word world, that doesn't mean any specific definition. We need to study the word. This word world is ion. We get our word eon from it. So people often say when they're speaking of millions and billions of years ago when the world was formed out of nothing, they would say eons ago. Of course, we, we don't believe with their theology, but that's the term. A long period of time, an age is an eon. So when it says the cares of the world, what it's referring to is the worries, the concerns, the thoughts, the musings, the considerations pertaining to the age, this time period. Now, we'll take a little excursus and we're going to talk about something. Because when he says the world, that's sort of in contrast to maybe another world. Where else could our minds go? And so we need to talk about this concept of two-age theology. We've referenced it briefly before, but 
we'll go into a little more detail here. In Matthew 12, 32, we studied this. Jesus says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age, same word, or in the age to come. Now, if I were to ask you, based on that verse, how many ages are there based on Jesus' words, what would you say? You'd say two. There are two ages. There's this age and there's the age to come. Okay? Ephesians 1, 21. Paul's speaking now. He's speaking of the, the rule and the reign of Christ. And he says, "...far above all rule and authority, and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So if we were to ask Paul, Paul, how many ages are there? He would say, two. Just like Jesus. They agree, there are two ages. There's this age, and there is the age to come. He doesn't say, this age, and then three and a half years, and then three and a half years, and then a thousand years, and then the age to come. He says, there's this age, and then this age will stop, and there will be another age. One to come. Now, what can we maybe learn from Scripture about the one to come? What does that mean? Listen to Jesus again in Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. So what do we learn there about the age that is to come? Well, we learn that it is the eternal age. It'll never stop. So if we have two ages, we have this age that will stop, and then we have another age that will never stop. The eternal age. This age is not eternal. This eon, this world, and then the next world will never stop. So bring it back to this passage in Matthew where Jesus is explaining the parable. When He says the cares of the world, He is referencing the worries, the concerns, the thoughts, the the musings, the considerations pertaining to the things of this current age. This life. Worldly thoughts. Worldly cares. Now when we think of worldly we usually think of grossly sinful. When we hear worldly, we think, well, she's a prostitute and he's a drug dealer. He cooks the meth and she sells it. That's what we think of when we hear worldly. But worldly doesn't necessarily mean grossly sinful. Worldly can just mean not godly, not heavenly, not spiritual, not of the next world. It's just of this world, things pertaining to this life and this time. It worldly is anything that will perish with this earth. Worldly is anything that will not count in eternity. That's the cares of the world. It doesn't have to be blatantly sinful. It just only pertains to now. That's the cares of the world. The second thing Jesus names here is the deceitfulness of riches. Deceitfulness of riches. Riches would be wealth, would be money, would be stuff, would be, would be um, tangible possessions. But notice Jesus doesn't say the cares of the world and riches. Not just riches, it's the deceitfulness of riches. 
So how does wealth and money and, and stuff, material possessions, how do these things become deceitful? Well, to answer that question, we have to answer or have to ask another question. What does, it re- what does being deceived require? Well, it requires that you place an unwarranted faith in a thing. That's what it takes to be deceived. Now, I'll give you an example. If you want to deceive someone, you want to trick someone, you want to play a practical joke on someone, you have to first begin by getting them to believe that you're not going to trick them. If they believe you're going to trick them, the joke's going to fall flat on its face. But if they think you're not going to trick them, even subconsciously, they've got faith in you that you're not going to jump out from around the corner and scare them, then you can get them good. But if they know they're going to scare me, the, the, the trick will fall. The deception will not work. So to be deceived, you have to have an unwarranted faith in a thing. Now how does this work with riches and money and possessions and stuff? Well, these types of physical, material treasures appear for a time to provide us for that for which our hearts are longing. They, they look like what we need. They look like what we want. They look like the thing that's going to make us happy. And so we put an unwarranted hope in these things. We, we trust that they will provide contentment, that they can actually never provide. They can never give us these things, but we think they can, and so we put unwarranted faith in a thing. And so because we think they will provide contentment, because we think they will provide happiness, security, safety, we pursue them, we chase after them, we, we go after it, because then I will have what I need. Then I will be safe. Then I will be taken care of. And this is how riches, material possessions, deceive people. And oftentimes, it's if they ever realize it, it's not until years later they realize, you know, I pursued that for years and years until I realized that stuff could never provide what I thought it could. They're deceived. In Proverbs 18.11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. See, this man thinks that he is protected. He thinks that he is safe because of his money, but it's only in his imagination because riches and money and wealth and possessions can never provide safety. They can never provide protection. Proverbs eleven twenty eight: Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Trust in his riches. Now, I don't know if you're like me, when I read trust in his riches, I tend to picture this man who's like sitting on a pile of gold coins. He's thinking, I'm so safe because I have my riches. But that's not what it means. This could be any amount of money that you have. It doesn't have to be a a large sum. It's just the fact that you are thinking that stuff is going to provide you with something that stuff cannot provide you with. And so Proverbs, that is godly wisdom, teaches us that to trust, to place unwarranted hope in material wealth is foolish, and it's actually the opposite of what the righteous do. You, trust, you can trust in riches, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. So over here you've got the guy who trusts in riches. Over here you've got the righteous. They are opposed. So here, one who, there's the cares of the world, and you've got the deceitfulness of riches. Two, thing, two things. Now we could throw in here 
What Mark says in Mark 4.19, he says the desires for other things. That might be in contrast to the desires of the things of God, or the desires for the Word of God, the desires for His kingdom. Luke 8.14, he says the pleasures of life. That would be in contrast to the pleasures of God's kingdom. All of this together summarize the point that he's making with the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. All of the things that pertain to this life, these things, Jesus says, choke the Word. Again, strangle. They grab it by the throat and they squeeze. They cut off the air supply until it dies. And it says it proves unfruitful. Yet another seed falling on fruitless soil. Another hearer of the Word hears the Gospel, is is, is so close to salvation, and yet the thoughts and cares pertaining to this life a faulty hope in unstable material possessions, wealth, and money for contentment, desires for other things beside the things of God and His kingdom, and a love for the pleasures of this life, strangle the Word. These things act against the Word and they make it unfruitful. These things work against the Word in your heart. The Word comes, those things exist, and they work against it. There's a battle and they wage war against the Word. And it proves unfruitful. So what happened to this person? They became divided and distracted. They heard the Word, and they probably even received the Word. It doesn't say they received it with joy like the previous here, but they probably received it, but they couldn't take their minds and their hearts and their thoughts off of the temporal things of this life long enough to let the Word do its work. They would hear it and then immediately back to everything else. Or they would hear it in one ear and in the, in the other ear the whole time they've got everything else of this life going on in their head. They may have even liked the Word when they heard it. They may have even considered this Gospel good news. They may have even considered it captivating. This is great. You mean to tell me that I can go to heaven instead of hell? That's great news, but it just wasn't quite as captivating as everything else that they had going on at the time. And so their minds were immediately drawn away. They were busy investing, busy planning, busy working, busy getting comfortable, busy having fun, traveling, enjoying the pleasures of life, busy settling into this world, so busy that they didn't have enough time to get ready for the next world. They had no time, no, no, no time to plan for the next life. They thought this is all there is, or at least they acted as though this life is all that there is. And how can we apply this? Well, the application is in the form of warnings and questions. Consider this question. How much time, how much thought, how much consideration, how much anxiety do you devote to spiritual things, to the things of God, the study of the Word and application of scriptural truth, to prayer, to fellowship with believers, to family worship in your home. If 
If I were to ask you that one-on-one, I would imagine the most common answer would be, well, you know, not enough, not as much as I should. Then uproot the thorns. Fix the problem. God didn't give anybody any more than 24 hours in a day and then say, well, now here's what you got. Now I'm, I'm hoping that somebody can figure out how to squeeze another hour out of this day. He gave everybody the same amount of time, everybody the same 66 books, and He says, now live a godly life. And some of us say, well, I just don't have enough time. You cannot refuse to make changes and expect things to change. That's insanity. You must commit to digging out the weeds. Uproot anything that is distracting you from your primary focus. Now here's what we say. It's not really that I'm that involved in other things. It's not that I really invest that much into worldly things. I don't know where my time goes. I just It's just gone. Remember, thorns don't need nurturing to grow. Nobody plants them. Nobody prunes them. You don't plant the cares of the world and then come back every day and say, well, let me make sure my cares of the world are growing. They just grow. You're born with these things. This is natural. You don't have to water the deceitfulness of riches. You naturally lean on worldly things. You don't prune your desires for other things, they just exist. There's no good or bad planting season for the pleasures of life. They just grow. Your worldly interests don't require exceptional attention. They will just absorb all of the attention that's not designated elsewhere. So when we say, well gosh, I don't know where my time goes, that's the problem. You don't know where your time goes. These types of things simply grow when you don't pay attention, when you're not focusing on the Lord and on the things of the next world and the next life, on spiritual things, they grow big. And they crowd out your life so that you don't have time to focus on the things of God. They spread large, creeping root systems. And so before long, all of your life is planned around everything in your life except for the things of God. Well, I've got this going on, and I've got this going on, and I've got this going on, and I've got this problem, and this problem, so once I get all of this figured out, then I can get God in the picture. The roots have crept into everything else. They grow tall, and they grow deep, and so they rob your heart and your mind of the necessary affections. We only have so many brain cells or, or heart cells to, to, to devote to things. And so they, they rob your affections... They rob you of your attention that you need to devote yourself fully to God and His Word and His kingdom and to prayer. You can't spend the same hour in prayer that you spend watching television. You, you can't do it. You have to pick. And everybody gets 24 hours in a day. And they grow strong. The longer you let them grow and the longer you let them fester, the more easily your heart becomes calloused to warnings like this. And you can explain away divided attention and all your worldly affections, you become immune to the discipline of the Lord. Your situation becomes special. No one's ever been in your situation before. You've got to do this and nobody else can speak into it. Well, I've just got to do this. This is just a necessary evil. Or, or well, i just got to have a little bit of fun sometime, right? Because for some reason, my fun is opposed to what God has commanded. 
Some of you would hear this word today. You would, you would receive it, but there are just other things in your mind. It's, it's crowding out your mind. You're thinking of other circumstances, other events, other interests, and they will win the day in your heart. There are prize idols in your life that you know God will require them at your hand. They, God, there are idols that you have stolen. God has devoted something to destruction. You have hidden it in the dirt under your tent and someday God will come for it and you will find out that it will require not only your life, but it will be ultimately damning to your whole entire family like Achan. You don't want that. To locate the thorns and uproot them. Get them out. Or Jesus would say, gouge out your eye. Chop off your hand. It's worth it for the kingdom of God. Then we have another question. Then how do I know what is a thorn? Or, or what might be a thorn? If it's not necessarily evil, it could be a good thing that can become a thorn. Then how do I know? How might I watch out for these things? Well, I'll answer that question again with some more questions. Do you have cares in this world? If you answer no, you're lying. We all have cares in this world. Do you have worries and anxieties about things that will perish when this ball of dirt burns up? Jesus says in Matthew 6.25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and these things will be added to you. What's he saying? Focus on me and I will take care of the rest. What do we do? i got to get the rest, rest figured out, Jesus. I mean... Let me get the rest figured out, and then I'll, I'll come hang out. Just a second, Jesus, while I'm figuring out the rest. And Jesus is saying, focus on me. Look towards me. Turn your gaze towards me, and all of this other stuff, the cares of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His mercy and His grace if you will just look to me, but we don't. More questions. Have you been deceived into thinking that money will fix your current situation? Do you think the next step on the corporate ladder will finally bring contentment? Do you think that another rise in the stock market will give you the safety net that you need? Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now notice, I've said this before, notice the distinction Paul's Paul's making. There is the desire to be rich, and then there's contentment. And contentment is defined as having food and clothing. And then there's the desire to be rich. The desire to be rich is the desire to have more than food and clothing. I'm not content with food and clothing. I need more. And he's saying this desire to be rich leads to temptation, leads to snares, leads to, many, or leads to many senseless and harmful desires, and it plunges people into ruin, ruins and destructions. Remember Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not an abortion doctor. 
Not a, not a terrorist. Not a drug dealer. A rich man. More questions. Do you have desires for other things? Say, no, you're lying. Do you desire things that are not spiritual? Do you have interests and hobbies that have nothing to do with God's kingdom? Then beware. Thorns do not grow overnight. They do not come to your door and say, excuse me, I'm a thorn. I know you're busy with the kingdom of God and all, but I would like to creep in and maybe take over your heart and mind. They don't ask if they can plant themselves. They just grow slowly. They seem, or things that seem, and may actually be harmless, can grow slowly and they can wrap themselves around your heart and slowly begin to squeeze and before you know it, your heart is strangled by just regular old pleasures of life. Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. World. Do not be conformed to this world, this age. Do not be pressed into the mold of this age. Don't let your mind and your heart be shaped don't let your behavior be shaped after the style and the fashion and the things of this current temporal way of doing things because this will pass. Trust me, however long, let's say the world exists, this life, this age exists for a billion years. That's a speck compared to eternity. I don't think it'll last for a billion years, but let's just say that it does. Everybody knows Jesus is coming back in three years. That's a joke. It's a speck. Don't allow yourself to be conformed to this present way of doing things. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Discern what the will of God is. Test things. Test your pleasures. Test your desires. Test your hobbies. Test your appetites. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with your time. Be honest with your focus and your affections. And see if what you're doing is good and acceptable and perfect and conforms to the will of God for your life. Don't be choked out by these things. Allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. Allow the Spirit of Christ to rule in your heart. Give the, the resurrected Lord undivided and fully devoted attention in your life. Give yourself heart, mind, and body fully to the rule of Christ. God demands. He demands this devotion and allegiance. Now, perhaps you realize your, your loyalties have been divided. Your focus has been torn. You've not given God the fidelity He deserves. And the question is, if I find myself in that position, how does God handle this? How does God deal with half-hearted faithfulness to His commands? Well, this answer is simple. Look at Calvary. Look at Christ with His hands pierced, His feet pierced hanging with a crown of thorns, beard pulled out, dripping with the blood and the sweat and the spit of His mockers, hanging at the cross, gasping for breath. And He says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Forsaken by God. That's how He deals with half-hearted devotion. Was Christ half-heartedly devoted? By no means. 
I was half-heartedly devoted. Christ took my sin upon Himself. If you are a Christian, Christ has taken your half-hearted devotions on Himself. And so, my challenge is simple. If, you, if you've been divided, if you've been unfaithful, if you've had your affections strewn across a smorgasbord of earthly delights, and the Holy Spirit has been gracious enough to show you your sin, repent. We saw last week, the, the response, the biblical response to the Word is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. To repent and run to Christ. Flee to the King and receive His mercies that are new every morning. Let's pray.